Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 12th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Confess and Believe, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 13. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. People are still stumbling over the person of Jesus. Paul is showing us two problems in these verses here. He's saying there are two ways you can miss God. It's not only trying to achieve righteousness by works, it's also willful disobedience to God. Yes, there are many people who still want him to be nothing more than a great teacher, someone who makes me happy. That's not what God is calling for. He's calling for total, unconditional surrender. He's talking about a daily process of dying to ourselves, our old desires, our old way of thinking. Man, this is another one of those, one of those messages. All of Romans has just been incredible. But, um, but today, right, Paul is, uh, we're going to be in Romans 10, uh, verses 5 through 13 today, if you want to turn there. But, um, but Paul, of course, is going to deal mainly with the problem of Israel's uh, failure to find righteousness through the law of God, and subsequently then, therefore, uh, salvation and eternal life, um, because, um, because you can't perfectly obey the law. Um, the rest of humanity, the Gentiles, you know, Paul kind of rocked uh, Rome's world at that time when he, in Romans 9.24, he says, uh, even us whom he has called, talking about the Jews, not, only, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, um, a people who had thought that they are the only chosen people, they're the only chosen race. There is, in fact, of course, only two races, and those two races, of course, um, are both a part of the human race, but they are both Jews and Gentiles. And so, um, but I don't know about you when it comes to our salvation. You know, Pastor Bob shared in some weeks past, um, he had shared that when he came to a saving faith as a young boy, Uh, that it was a very clear time, a very clear moment when salvation became real uh, to him. Um, And uh, and I hear that from a number of people, Um, but I'll speak on behalf of other people. It wasn't that clear to me. And, um, you know, my youthful thoughts of Christianity and following Christ, you know, our family never really even darkened the door of a church, right? We uh, we just didn't do that. Um, But... But I thought about Christianity, I thought about God, that following Jesus would mean that I'd have to give up fun in my life, that I would have to sacrifice the good times. Um, and that may even be true to a certain extent, if, depending upon how you measure or qualify a good time. But when you start to look at Christianity, um, I remember not wanting anything to do with this Jesus guy. And... Uh, but I remember the first time the gospel was actually shared with me. I was about 10 years old. It was my grandmother who made me sit down and watch a Billy Graham crusade on television. And uh, I remember listening to this, my grandmother constantly interrupting and explaining things to me and helping me to understand what he's saying and all those different things. And the word of God was going in these ears, and I felt like they were possibly going out the other ear. But I was listening to what she had to say, but I really didn't want anything to do with it. But it did cause me to ponder. It caused me that night when I was laying in, uh, in the bed 
um, in Missouri, and I was staring out the window, and, uh, and I was thinking, man, did God make these really interesting bugs, these fireflies that keep lighting up out there? And, uh, and I was just in tune with, well, I mean, if there is a God, this is crazy. If God created all of this, this is mind-blowing. No real radical change that took place in my life on that visit to my grandparents. Um, but it was later when I was about 16 years old um, that a group of guys um, in an organization called Young Life um, came and approached me and one of my best friends that I'd grown up since kindergarten with and said, hey, you guys want to come to camp? Just like you guys going to camp. And of course, for me, going to camp meant girls were going to be there and it was an opportunity to uh, pick up on girls, right? So that was my grand motivation, my grand plan. And so in all of its wisdom and glory, they were also going to be talking about this gospel, talking about God. And I was like, ah, oh, boring, right? You're going to talk about God. You're going to kill us. Can't we just all get together and hang out and get to know each other and have fun? I remember it so distinctly. I'm still friends to this day with the guy who was actually the pastor who preached at that time. And we're going back to probably 1981. But it was at Forest Home, if you've ever been there, Forest Falls, um, California. And uh, it was a winter camp. And so there was snow on the ground. And it was, a, it was a great time. But I remember they kept pulling us in and the speaker kept talking about this concept of holy ground, holy ground. Kept mentioning holy ground. I'm like, who cares? Right? Holy ground. And uh, he said, Moses, where he stood in the burning bush, was holy ground. He, he talked about the holy ground, which was the Garden of Eden. He talked about all this holy ground. And then he kept saying to us that if the Spirit comes into you and takes residency inside of you, everywhere you stand is, in fact, holy ground because of the presence of God. And I'm thinking, man, that is a whole can of dumb. I don't even know what that is. I don't know what that means. I just don't want anything to do with this. And so we were going on one of those mandated 15-minute isolation breaks, which is an eternity for a 16-year-old boy, right? You're going to go and talk to no human being for 15 minutes and just think and ponder what the, what the guy just told us. And I thought, man, it's freezing outside. I just want to find someplace warm. And I wander up the hill, and I come across this little thing called the prayer chapel at Forest Home, this little tiny building. And I went inside there thinking, man, I will escape the cold. I will be able to escape other people. And I will do my 15 minutes of stupid. And then it will all be great. Right? But I open up the door. I stare down at the ground. And there on this gold placard, it says, holy ground. Man, I can't escape this guy. Everywhere. This guy has plastered holy ground everywhere on this camp. I can't get away from holy ground. I can't get away from it. So I don't know if that was the moment that the Holy Spirit entered me, but I can tell you this. I went into that prayer chapel, and for that 15 minutes, sitting in that pew was a Bible. And in that Bible, I picked up that Bible, and I began to read the very text that he was preaching from, thinking about it, pondering about it. A lot like looking at fireflies out the window, just trying to understand it. Well, you flash forward, I went into a double life, and I lived this double life. I was Jeff the Christian with his Christian friends, and I was Jeff the party guy with Jeff's party friends. And I thought to myself, man, I just want to keep having fun. I just want to live life fun. What's wrong with having fun? Well, and later on, when I was about uh, in my early to mid-20s, 23 or so, um, I was held at gunpoint 
And these guys literally put me in the execution position. The guy kept playing with the trigger at the back of my head. And I thought to myself, man, I'm about to come face to face with this creator, with this Jesus. And he doesn't know me. I've lived this double life. I could hear my youth leader telling me, Jeff, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy your name? Didn't we do all these things? Didn't we do everything in the name of Jesus? Depart from me, you who practices lawlessness. I never knew you. Today's message is about not you knowing Christ. It's about do you know if Christ knows you? Is there a faith that is indwelling you? Paul's contrast here is law and faith. We say to ourselves, if I'm just good in front of people that see me, then I must be good. We've already learned that there's no one good, not even one. Why do I need to admit that I'm a sinner? Why do I have to confess this? Why do I need to confess that Jesus is Lord? Why do I have to confess that Jesus was raised from the dead? Why can't I just keep this private and personal to myself? Why can't I do what I want to do when I want to do it? Last week, Pastor Joe finished. His last verse was Romans 10, 4, which says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul also told us in Galatians 3.24 that the law was our guardian or our tutor. It's been accompanying us until Christ came, right? It was the standard so which we could recognize the Savior who would come and fulfill it, not for the purposes of you fulfilling it and therefore being saved, in order that we might be justified by faith is why Christ came. We'll start here in Romans 10, verse 5, but, but the question that you're going to have in the back of your head is, he uses terms like all, and he uses terms like called, and we've got to put these things in the right sequence, because everyone who is called is part of the all, and all who are called are called. But how do we separate all humanity without exclusion versus a person or a group of distinction? Is it universalism? Is everybody saved? Or is it a specific group of people? Is that what Paul's trying to communicate here as he compares and contrasts Jews and Gentiles? Point one here today is righteousness by law or by faith. Is my righteousness by law or is it by faith? Look at what he says in verse five. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He hasn't gotten rid of the law here. He's just simply saying that Moses wrote about the righteousness that is based upon the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You live by them, you'll die by them. Paul's entire argument proceeds on the assumption that God is just, that God is fair. But he does and must demand righteousness. The requirement to stand before a holy God is perfection. Without this holiness, without perfection, you are not equipped to stand there. He has to, in fact, demand righteousness on those whom he justifies. He can't put you before God the Father 
as a sinner. He declares you not guilty. So the question becomes, is that guilt been taken away because of what I did or is that guilt been taken away because of what he did? Paul's contrasting these two possible ways in which righteousness can be obtained. He says, by works or by faith. We must either have a righteousness completely of our own or receive and trust in a righteousness which is not our own. But which has been purchased for us? Which one has been redeemed or bought for us? Was holy ground there by accident? Or did God lead me to the prayer chapel so I could read the word? You see, righteousness based on the law is what he's talking about here. But he adds this word in verse six, but. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, what he's saying here is you can't work your way into heaven and you can't plead your case in hell. No matter what you do, you cannot build a scaffolding that will get you to heaven. And your pouty lip and saying I didn't understand will not be an adequate excuse. What he's also communicating here is that to descend, to ascend into heaven or to go down into the abyss was to do what was impossible. The law is not possible to bring you righteousness. This, in a sense, would be the plan of salvation by faith does not require us to do what cannot be done. It does not require us to provide our own savior or to raise the savior from the dead. What he's saying is that a savior has been provided and now we are only required to confess who we are to him and who he is to us and to believe in the wholeness of our heart. That's the requirement for salvation. It's clearly implied in that verse that the attainment or the the gifting of salvation or justification is a method which prescribed perfect obedience. Is this for sinful men possible? I don't think so. It is the subject of the coming verses, right? to declare that the gospel requires no such impossibility. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not require your work or your effort at all. It is entirely, wholly a work of Christ himself. It demands true faith. It demands public profession. It demands credibility. Remember, Paul said in Romans 9.30, he says, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, right, they didn't pursue the law, have attained it? You bet, they did. That is, here's what they attained, a righteousness that is by faith. Paul's not recommending that we remove the requirement of the law. What he's stating is someone fulfilled it. 
The sign and seal that everyone was looking for was the Messiah to come who would show and reveal that he fulfilled this law. He perfectly obeyed. And we are to have faith in Christ as the object of that faith. But the question is, is where does faith come from? Pastor Bob will talk about it next week when he gets to Romans 10, 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's the word of Christ. What was not only beneficial is that the camp speaker was there telling me about Christ, telling me about holy ground, but then there was holy ground that I looked at and then there was a Bible sitting there and the word of God ministered to me. And the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you through his word. I'm not saved because that man preached the word. I'm saved because God delivered the word through the Holy Spirit in me. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the cause of faith? Where does faith come from? More specifically, what is the primary causality? I get that we say a prayer. I get that we raise our hand or we come forward at camp or we do whatever we have to do. But, but is that really what the means of my salvation was? Is that action my action? Or did something take place first? Paul, again, is going to lead in verse 8 with a but. He's going to say, but what does it say? What does it say? It says this, the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Interesting. Near you, in your mouth, in your heart, this is the good news of the gospel and is in fact the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The spirit that comes into us is representing Christ, who is the word that is flesh, right, that dwelt among us. And this word that is in our mouth and in our heart is going to cause me to do something, proclaim. But the word takes place first. Verse nine, because, if this word causes me to proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love that word heart there, cardia. It's where we get cardiac or cardiologist, right? This Greek word is regarded as the seat of feeling and impulse or affection and desire. It deals with our intellect, our emotion, our will. Do you realize that the human heart begins to beat 21 days after conception? And when that child is born, it will grow to be however old, and by average, that heart will beat 2.5 billion times before God takes you out of this earth. I'm not talking here today about the limited sense of the heart. This is not about emotion, emotion alone. We as a society have made an incredible hobby of making emotions object truth. They're is no object truth in emotions. They might be valid, but they are in fact not objective. They reveal. They don't compel. You see, I'm talking here today about the totality of the heart. I get in the concept that God wrote me in the Lamb's Book of Life before the very foundation of the world. He decreed, he spoke into existence that Jeff Stevens would be saved. He did that before time existed. But when did he reveal it? 
When did the emotion, when did the intellect, when did the volition of will actually take place? You see, the heart is a universal symbol for the center of the origin of man, of mankind. It started 21 days upon conception, and it goes till God stops it and brings you to him. This weekend, I was uh, in a quiet time, and I was looking at God's word, and God brought me to Proverbs 27, 19, which says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. It's great to stare at your face in a mirror, but it doesn't tell me anything about you. You can't judge that book by its cover, but the heart of that human being will reveal exactly who they are. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you today a sinner saved by God's grace. That's it. The truth to be believed is that God raised Christ from the dead. That is that we must believe that by the resurrection of Christ, God himself has publicly acknowledged, proclaimed Jesus to be all that he claimed that he was and has publicly accepted of all that, can, that he came to perform. This is the Messiah. He has recognized him as his son and the savior of the world. And he has accepted his blood as a sacrifice for sin. If God will proclaim him, why won't we? You see, the word heart shouldn't be taken in the limited sense of it. It should be looking in its totality, the totality of the heart. You see, confession is our outward compulsion when I confess that I am a sinner, when I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, when I confess that Jesus rose from the dead, faith in my mind becomes real when it becomes words. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart has stored in its evil, it will bring forth evil. If you have stored the goodness of God within your heart, it will bring forth good. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's also Luke 6.45. When we start to understand that this is how the heart works, and if the heart is just saying, hey man, I'm just here seeking some fun, it will find fun, but it will not find the Savior. A heart transplant has to take place. The Holy Spirit has to work within the person and take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and begin to shape and mold it. I'm praying that here today that there's even some people in this room where God in this period of time is going to take your stoned heart out of you and replace it with a heart of flesh and compel you to come forward, compel you to confess that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. When we start to look at the saving faith of God, it is not a mere intellectual ascent. You didn't choose God because you're the smartest person in the room. I was standing there watching as we were doing this altar call at Forest Home, and there he says, I'm thinking to myself, I want nothing to do with this whole Christianity. I want nothing to do with this. This is crazy. This is literally stupid. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? And the next thing I know, I'm standing in the front of the room accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. Not because I wanted to be there. And as I turn and I look at my best friend, I've known him since kindergarten. And he's standing there looking at me like this. What? What are you doing? What are you doing? You're an idiot. Get down. 
Was I just brighter than him? Hey, they're offering a real great package deal here. If you just put your faith, you proclaim Jesus, right? You get eternal life. But why? Why is he not coming forward? Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's God who works the heart of humanity. Look at the primary causality. Go all the way back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Here's what it says. And I, talking about God, I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And look at this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and I'm gonna cause you to care, be careful and to obey my rules. We need Jesus Christ not only for our justification, we need him for our sanctification. If the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in you, you will obey nothing. We need the spirit of God within us to compel us to walk and to move forward. By faith we secure this interest in the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness given to me, and my sinfulness pushed upon him. And by confessing him before men, we secure the performance of his promise that he will in fact confess you before God the Father. That's the primary causality. When we start to look at the doctrine of justification, as it's called, or the method of securing our salvation, this doctrine is the cardinal doctrine. It is the chief doctrine in the belief of sinners. It is the main point. The main point is whether that God spoke me in the Lamb's Book of Life before the end of the world in the acceptance of being in myself or in someone else. Whether the righteousness on which we depend be of me or of God. Remember, Pastor Joe talked about it last week. We touched upon Romans 10.3. Look at what, what he's contrasting this to. He's contrasting it to the Jews. And he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Nothing that we do is about the law, but the spirit within me will compel me to obey the law. I am not saved by my works, I am saved by grace through the gift of faith. Faith, therefore, becomes a moral exercise where I have to do something. Men believe with the heart in, their, in the ordinary scriptural meaning of that word and no faith which does not proceed from the heart is connected with justification. I can't intellectually place myself there a heart change has to take place. A renewing of the mind must take place. That has to proceed. Justification is always perceived by the indwelling Holy Spirit because Romans 10.10 says, for with the heart one believes. This will cause an action, a demonstrative receiving that drives action. It is the gospel within me that produces and compels belief not because I recognize the greatest deal. 
Our point three today is that who truly believes? Everyone who truly believes will be saved. He's just told us that. He said, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So who's the everyone who believes on him? Paul is comparing and contrasting here the two methods of law and faith. And it was to show that the gospel method was from its nature adapted so that it would be inclusive of all humanity without exclusion. In other words, the gospel was designed to be shared with everybody. Look at what he's gonna say here. And because it was adapted to all men, it should also therefore be preached to all men. He's driving this point home. In fact, he's paraphrasing Isaiah 28, 16, which says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You will not be in haste. You will not be embarrassed. You will not be shamed. You will not stand before a holy God empty-handed with a pouty lip, but you will stand boldly before a holy God and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess out of all humanity without exclusion that this God is the one true God, period. He says in verse 12, he says, he says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Paul's driving these two points home. He says that the faith is the confession or the acceptance and that the matter not whether the individual or the Jew be a Jew or a Gentile. There's only two races. He's covered all humanity without exclusion. And God is equally gracious to both. Look at what he says in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. That's all humanity without exclusion. And what does he do here? Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He only gives his riches to those who will call upon him. This is a group of distinction. Because you need him. You need his riches. You need his works. You need his righteousness. I don't have anything to offer him. If I pulled my pockets out, they would be rabbit ears. I have nothing to offer this God. Not even the slightest remote aspect of my belief, but a belief that is compelled by the indwelling Holy Spirit in a heart transformation. The method of salvation, because it is adapted to all classes of people, and God is equally the God of the Gentiles and the Jews, then to accomplish this purpose, the gospel therefore must be preached to all mankind. Because I don't know who's in his Lamb's Book of Life. I don't know whom he's here to save. I don't know who he's here to save today. And brothers and sisters, I am not here to convict, convert, or convince you of anything, but to merely preach the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. This is the requirement of us as preachers of God's word. But who are the all? Who are the all that will call on him? He says it in Acts 13, 48. 
This great moment when so many Gentiles were coming to salvation. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Not a clever speaker, not a great motivational talk, but the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed eternal life, believed. God is the primary causality of our salvation. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe wholeheartedly with everything. He said in verse 29, he says, where is the God, of the, God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles. Paul is making a distinction of those whom will believe. He is not speaking about all humanity without exclusion. That would be called universalism. That'd be like the people who show up at your house that are universalists for evidently no reason whatsoever because everyone's saved. But the word of God goes out. He says in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not all people call upon the Lord. So who's the everyone that believes? He said it all the way back in Joel. Joel 2, 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The prophecy in Joel has a direct reference to this messianic period, this time of Jesus, the time of the church. And therefore the Lord, who was to be looked to, to be called upon for salvation, is in fact the person of Jesus Christ. All whosoever, without any limitation as to family or nation. All humanity without exclusion. But who call on him are the ones that shall be saved. This is Paul's doctrine as the Holy Spirit gave it to him. Brothers and sisters, it is utterly preposterous. It's wicked to attempt to confine the offer of salvation to just the Jewish people. Or equally, equal, equally preposterous is to question the necessity of the extension of the gospel to all humanity. This is our obligation. This is our responsibility. This is what the Holy Spirit should be compelling you to do. You don't have to go to the middle of nowhere. You can share this with people in your grocery store. You can share it with your family, even though they're going to dump you. You can share it with all kinds of people, but don't confuse when Jesus said in the authority based on him, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, that he was just talking to the, to the apostles or to the disciples. If he was talking to the disciples, then he's talking to you. He's talking to me. Paul beautifully transitions from the nature and plan of mercy and its sufficiency that is to all humanity in his kindness to bring the word to the subject principally in view here, though, is the calling of the Gentiles and the duty of preaching the gospel to all people. So what's the takeaway today? Matthew twenty two fourteen says, for many are called, but few are chosen. My question is, is did my friend on that day who I grew up with in kindergarten, did he not hear the same message that I heard? 
Was he not called on that day to come forward? How do we know if we are among the few that have ears to hear? By simply responding to the call. I know some of you, maybe there's people in here right now, your heart is pounding out of your chest because in this brief period of time that we've been together, God has surgically removed your heart of stone and he has given you a heart of flesh. The assurance of this certain call, this chosen call, is from the Holy Spirit, not from me. If we listen with our spiritual ears and respond to the invitation, there will be fear and trembling in our souls as we recognize that it was God's work in us that has caused us to come forward, to proclaim him. The only question for you is, what are you going to do with it? As Christians, we should breathe the spirit of equality, not the world's form of equality, but understanding that we are all sinners. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need a Savior. A belief which regards all mankind as brothers and sisters, which looks on God, not as the God of this nation or of that church, but as the God and the Father of all. And he proposes, right, to all the same condition of acceptance and which opens equally to all the same boundless and unsearchable blessings. How will the remembrance of the simplicity or the reasonableness of the plan of salvation, as well as the readiness of God to accept all who will in fact call upon him, and those who also will be overwhelmed by those who are perishing from beneath the sound of the gospel? Like my friend at Forest Home, he was called but not chosen yet. I have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that if God sets his mind and his affections to save his soul, he will save his soul. But his heart was hard that day. And even over the last 40 whatever years, his heart has become even harder. I pray for him. In fact, he's, he's in my Wednesday prayer list every morning, praying that God would save his soul. He thinks I'm crazy. He can't believe that I would give up a career to come do this. But I remind him, he knows there is a God. He knows that Jesus is him. But he wants to pursue his own desires. And Romans proves that accurate, for he is without excuse. As I invite the worship team and the prayer team back up, I know we're having some of our pastors up here uh, today um, as part of the prayer team, but coming to God for salvation is simply a believing in Christ, a wholehearted belief expressed by calling on the Lord or confessing the Lord with the entirety of one's being. You see, God invites all to come to him in this way. No matter what culture or religion or race you come from, God gives us his riches. He bestows those riches upon us, the Holy Spirit, and he calls with kindness, 
a kindness which will lead us to repentance. Repentance is more than just, I'm sorry. It's more than just going a different direction. Repentance is understanding that I have a renewing of my mind, that I think differently, that I depend and trust upon the person of Jesus Christ, that no matter what is thrown at me, every single time I will put my faith and my trust in him. It is the full wealth that is in Christ Jesus that the renewing of our mind creates repentance and faith. The renewing of mind and trusting God in faith. The old self will continue to just simply try and be good. Impress people by your, by your goodness, by the things that you do. That's your legalism. But the new mind will confess sin. I am a sinner. I am a chief sinner of them all. The new mind will say, I need a savior. The new mind confesses that he and he alone is God. The new mind says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The new mind believes with the wholeness of my heart that Jesus is Lord. Brothers and sisters, I would forsake my friends. I will forsake fortune. I will forsake everything on this earth to pursue and follow Jesus Christ. In the words of Christ, give everything you have to the poor and follow Christ. Everything. Do you believe? Are you, are you, is your heart pounding? Are you saying, I want to follow this guy no matter what it costs? He does not want a portion of you. Students, I cannot tell you this enough. Give up your double lives. Sell your soul to Christ. Give everything to him and live for his glory. Nothing will change in this world until the people of this world see you and me sacrificing what seems to be common sense of the world for the renewing of the mind and a trust and a total dependence upon Christ. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord because brothers and sisters, he is our only living hope. There is no other way but through him. Our Father and our God, we come to you as sinners saved by your grace, dependent upon you in need of your grace and your mercy. Fill us now, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to follow you literally and figuratively give everything away that we trust in front of you but to trust you and you alone in Christ's name we pray brothers and sisters he is our living hope maybe the spirit is working in you today and it's time to let the lion out it's time to in fact come before him and profess and proclaim that Jesus is Lord our prayer team and our pastors are down here and if you would be so bold as just to, to come forward and spend time just praying with them this morning. Praying and letting us come alongside and help you. Let us direct you, lead you, pray with you, praise with you. Come to Christ. I'm not promising an easy path. And you will forsake everything you acknowledged is fun at one point but you will find the joy that is before you in the person of Jesus Christ our father we come to you we ask that your light would be upon us that you would lead and direct our paths every day that you would compel us to obey 
but Lord, most of all, that we would have an abundant life that you promised. And in this light and momentary time of affliction, it would pale in comparison to the glory that is to come. Help us to take faith and to trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 